This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumelele Zondi. We are on nine six two five kilohertz. That's on the thirty one meter band. If you are in Southern Africa, if you prefer streaming us, so that's channelafrica.co.za. I'm with Jola Netulo, Wisani Matebula, and Musiburi Makura. Your top stories. The blame game continues in Zimbabwe after a post-election protest turned fatal. The return of Jean-Pierre Bemba adds an interesting dimension to DRC politics. In economics, Uganda's pharmaceuticals maker says it's planning an initial public offering of part of its equity and a listing on the East African country's stock exchange and in sport. South African women under-17 national team hard at work in preparation for the site's training camp ahead of the FIFA under-17 women's World Cup said to take place in Uruguay. Chola Netulo has your news. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. The final results of Zimbabwe's National Assembly after Monday's elections have ZANU-PF standing at 144 seats with nearly 69% of the 220-seat House. Its closest rival is the MDC Alliance, which won 64 seats, or just over 30%. The National Patriotic Front, a party sympathetic to former President Robert Mugabe, captured a single seat and another went to an independent candidate, Temba Mliswa who won the Norton constituency. The Zimbabwe's Electoral Commission Deputy Chairperson Emmanuel Magade elaborates. Let me assure this audience that there is absolutely no scoundaggery or uh, anything untoward happening in relation to Chegu uh, West. As he said, we are seized with the matter. We are going to get to the bottom of it and we don't want anybody to feel had done by we want to treat all the candidates fair. Meanwhile, civil arrests have been made following Wednesday's violent protests in Harare. Three people were killed when the army fired an opposition on opposition supporters who were angry at what they claim were the rigging of the elections. Thousands of demonstrators took to the streets demanding for the presidential results to be released. Mbali Tetani reports. Zimbabwe's Republic Police have confirmed that several people linked to yesterday's violence in Harare have been detained. Thousands of demonstrators filled the streets of Harare, vandalizing property and barricading roads with burning tires and rubble. The army was brought in to quell tensions in the capital city. They have been accused of using live ammunition. At least three people have been killed following yesterday's demonstrations, but it's not yet clear how many people were injured. The identity of the armed group that abducted the four journalists working for Reuters and AFP who have been detained in Tripoli, Libya, remains unconfirmed. The reason for the abduction and the group's demands are also unclear. The BBC's Celia Hatton reports. The four men had been working on a water project in western Libya when they were abducted last month. They were shown in a video released this week pleading their governments for help. The group that seized them has yet to be publicly identified. 
The South Korean presidential spokesman said Seoul was doing all it could to secure its citizens' release. So it was mobilizing resources into the area, shifting a warship destroyer from the Gulf of Aden, where it was engaged in anti-piracy operations, over to Libyan waters. Seoul says it's working with the authorities in Tripoli. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, a team led by the health minister has arrived in Beni, the eastern region hit by Ebola. This is the country's second outbreak in less than three months. Health Minister Oli Ilunga Kalenga said the eastern province of northern Kivu had notified the ministry of 26 suspected cases of Ebola. 20 of those cases are fatal. On July 24th, the government declared the end to a 10-week outbreak of Ebola that struck northwestern Democratic Republic of Congo, claiming 33 lives. The latest outbreak is the 10th in the DRC since 1976 when it was discovered in the north of the country. And finally, the Roman Catholic Church has changed its position on the death penalty, declaring rather that it's wrong to use capital punishment in all circumstances. The 1.2 billion member Catholic Church had allowed the death penalty in extreme cases for centuries. The BBC's John McManus has the details. Last year, Pope Francis called capital punishment an inhuman measure, which was contrary to the gospel. He made the remarks on the 25th anniversary of the publication of the church's catechism, which up till now said that the death penalty was permissible if it was the only way of effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor. That text has now been replaced, but perhaps just as importantly, at the time the Pope also said changing attitudes to capital punishment were an example of how church teaching evolved in response to faith and modern questions. That will cheer Francis's supporters and enrage his critics. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Seventeen oh six Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now Zimbabwe is on urge awaiting the results of its historic presidential election after troops opened fire during a protest against alleged electoral fraud denting hopes of a new era for the southern African country following the ousting of former President Robert Mugabe. At least six people have reportedly been killed, while several others sustained gunshot injuries after violent clashes in Harare. The country's electoral commission is set to announce the presidential votes results this afternoon. Well, they were uh, expected this afternoon. They have since said they will be starting tonight at 10 p.m. We spoke to Professor Cheryl Hendricks from the Africa Institute of South Africa Africa, who is currently in Zimbabwe about yesterday's developments and whether the regional body, Southern African Development Community, should intervene. Yesterday we were all sitting and listening to the various observer missions reporting on how peaceful the elections were and how historic these elections were. And an hour later, the streets of Harare erupted in violence. Protesters, um, largely NBC from what we could see, were marching to Zik. Um, Some of them were throwing stones. They were trying to bring down posters with ED on it. And and you know that the Zanapiev building is right next to where Zik was releasing the results as well. They were protesting against Zik's um, delay in releasing the presidential results because they were also insinuating that these results are now being rigged. And it just went violent very quickly. 
What happened then is that the police came in, the army came in, and the reports say anywhere between three and six people have died here. Now, do you think, Prof, there are merits in the opposition complaints that uh, the results are being cooked in favor of ZANU-PF, or are they overreacting? Well, I don't know. It should be very easy to verify these results. Um, there were polling agents from all the political parties at these polling booths. There would be 11 forms posted outside. Surely we can very easily track the V11, compare the V11 forms with the results that they have released. They can put a process together for that fairly quickly and check this, not through social media, but through the processes and institutions set up to manage electoral conflict, I think. This should be done uh, immediately almost to dispel rumors that the election was rigged. Now, it's very different to say uh, that this was not a level playing field. It could not have been a level playing field because the incumbent always seems to have the advantage. Here you have ZANU-PF that has been in power for 38 years. They could use the state resources at their disposal. So they had more funding to have a more effective campaign. They've always been able to get that rural vote. This time it's around again that you could see that rural vote coming in. Um, a sea of green paraphernalia all over the streets of Arari, and I'm sure in the rural areas again. They had an advantage. There was media bias. So not a level playing field. But whether vote reading in terms of not counting the votes properly or adding votes, I obviously cannot uh, make a call on that that um, the electoral officials from all parties need to make the call on. Do you think the whole uh, process of uh, collating the results by ZEC has been uh, transparent enough for everybody to see what is happening with the results? I think they could have come up with a far more effective and efficient process. They had biometric uh, voter registration. Why did they not go the electronic route? I mean, simply um, sending through uh, the vote count at the end. So they moved the votes from polling stations towards where they were verified again and from there to the uh, ZDC command center. That just leaves too much room for things to occur. Um, in this day and age, we need the votes to come out as fast as possible. So they also then started releasing parliamentary results, constituency by constituency, so that you couldn't really track how these votes were playing out by by province, and they were not releasing the presidential results. They still have not released these presidential results. Now they're claiming procedures and they're claiming they have five days to do so. However, ZEC should have been communicating much more with the population so that they know what is going on. And as I said before, they could have made this process way more efficient. Everybody's waiting for presidential results rather than parliamentary results. Why not release those first? And why are you taking so long? Because you've had those results. Should the regional body SADC and the African Union be involved at this point? Or is it too soon to intervene, do you think? I think it's too soon to intervene. Let us leave it among the Zimbabweans to, to sort this out as um, quickly as possible. They have the means to do so. Everybody needs to show leadership now and not be making grandstands. 
That is Professor Cheryl Hendricks, Executive Director of the Africa Institute of South Africa on the line from Harare in Zimbabwe, talking to Kumbero Munjarere. Now, the Congolese opposition politician Jean-Pierre Bemba has returned to the country for the first time in more than a decade to a rousing welcome from his supporters. When he left in 2007, he just lost a presidential election. The aftermath was violent and he was accused of treason. While he was away, he was arrested tried in The Hague and convicted of war crimes. The case was all about actions of fighters from his rebel group in the neighboring Central African Republic, but the conviction was overturned on appeal earlier this year, paving the way for his return. He's back to launch another attempt to be president of the Democratic Republic of Congo in elections to take place later this year. The BBC's Ensoy reports on his arrival in the capital, Kinshasa. convoys trying to make its way out of the airport but his supporters would not let him the crowd here breaks out into celebration the moment they see Jean-Pierre Bemba emerge from his vehicle this is the moment they've been waiting for it's been a long time coming I am so so happy says this supporter he was put in jail unjustly but now, he's back. We've suffered for many years. That's why we are here. We are sure that when Bemba takes power, everything will be fine. But nothing is guaranteed in this country. Not even access to his home. For hours, police blocked Jean-Pierre Bemba's convoy from going to his house. Yves Bazaiba is his party secretary general. The authority did not allow him to go to this house because uh, the presidential area, no one like him can live there. But we are so surprised because this is the, the parents' home. He can't go away. He don't have another accommodation. He must live with his wife and uh, children there where they are the family. The chief of police in Kinshasa, General Silvano Kasongo, defended his decision. Of course there are security reasons, because in 2006 his militia created problems here in the city. Some people lost their relatives and there was a military confrontation. Now, coming here to stay next to the president is not good for security. Even for himself, there might be people tempted to revenge. If he lives next to the president, he will be controlled and searched all the time. He'll not be happy. Perhaps a sign of things to come. Jean-Pierre Bemba, he's been away from this country for 12 years. Ten of those spent in prison for war crimes. That conviction was overturned last month, paving the way for his return. His supporters have been waiting for this moment. He has declared that he wants to run for president, but there is a hurdle. The government of Joseph Kabila has allowed him back into the country, but they say because of his conviction on a separate charge of bribing witnesses, he may not run for president. So the next one week is going to be very crucial for this country. Team Jean-Pierre Bemba has to make tough decisions and compromises. Will they put forward his name to run for president or will he support, as he has said, another opposition candidate and who will that be? There's the BBC's Ensoy reporting from Kinshasa. 
across the globe every second there's always a breaking story Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa Reporting for Channel Africa I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned giving you the whole picture every time George Muhango Channel Africa Blantyre Reporting for Channel Africa this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. 1716 Central African Time, info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, let's go to Nigeria, where President Muhammadu Buhari will travel to Britain for 10 days to... Uh, uh, 10 days of leave, rather, which starts tomorrow. The president's medical trip to the United Kingdom will be his sixth to the country since he assumed office three years ago. Last year, Buhari spent five months in London for treatment for an unspecified illness, an absence that prompted many to question his fitness to run a country which is one of Africa's biggest economies. The 75-year-old is running for re-election next year, but has faced a series of recent defections from the ruling All Progressive Congress Party. According to Lagoon Akinloye, London-based Nigerian analyst, Buhari's absence lends credence to perceptions that he is not fit to hold office. I think personally that um, uh, President Buhari's leave of absence, absence um, once again poses the question, is he fit to run as president and um, is he fit to run a campaign for re-election? Um, this might be the fourth or fifth time he's gone to London to seek medical attention. Um, first of all, are there not good enough doctors in Nigeria to deal with whatever ailments you might have? And um, you are even yet to disclose to, to, uh, to the Nigerian people what is wrong with you. Um, but yet, you go abroad frequently to seek medical attention. Um, I personally think it questions whether he is fit to be president. Now, the leave comes on at the back of the tumultuous political development back at home. Uh, the Senate president walked out of uh, the ruling party this week amid a wave of uh, defections to a swelling opposition movement ahead of elections next year. Are these defections taking a toll on him, do you think? Um, I think that the timing of his medical trip is just all wrong. Um, as you stated, um, last week, um, 50 members of Nigeria's parliament en masse um, decamped to the opposition party. Um, only on Monday, um, the president of the Senate, um, the highest lawmaking body of the country, defected. Um, uh, people are leaving the president's party en masse. Um, the main issue they are having is that um, the president is not a party man. He's a power man and does not know how to deal with um, individual politicians and sees himself in a way as a god figure. Um, and him going on holiday, summer holiday, on like medical leave during this period in time is actually a clear indication that um, he sees himself as invincible. Um, somebody who is dealing with um, the possible implosion of their party um, would stay put and would uh, try to ensure that other members don't leave or try to make the members within your, your party um, not follow the way the others have done. Um, but no. um, um, His best idea is to go abroad on medical leave during such a crucial and an important time. So uh, 
who knows if there will be more defection while sure. he's away. Um, it is very, very likely. And people are leaving the President's party uh, to join other people because they've lost faith in his ability to turn around the fortunes of Nigeria. Now, he has announced his intention to run in next year's election. His fitness for office is always a topic of discussion, as you have pointed out. Why do you think he is determined to run for yet another term, even though his health seems to be failing him? Um, I think um, power is a very difficult thing to let go of. Um, I think that um, the people who he represents, not only his ethnic group, the House of Fulani, but the people who back him are a very major part of Nigerian political system. Um, they feel that they've been cut out from power um, when um, the Yoruba under Abbasanjo were president. And um, he represents more than just a man. He represents um, a whole group of people who believe that um, uh, Nigeria does not necessarily belong to them, but it's their turn to rule. Um, and before he became president, um, Mamadou Buhari tried on three different occasions and lost the election. Therefore, um, to him, it seems like he has a underlying um, thrust and lust for power. Now, um, the question is, does he deserve to run again? Uh, we've discussed about his health, which I think is grounds enough for an individual not to run. Um, take care of your health before you take care of a country. Second of all, has he done enough to even warrant an election? Um, uh, nothing in Nigeria has changed. If anything, things have got worse under him. Insecurity, um, the Fulani herdsmen, um, Boko Haram are still there, and um, banditry is on the increase. There's nothing he can point to and say that, okay, I deserve a re-election. And when you weigh up all these things, um, it, does, it, it does make you think, well, why does he want to run again? That is Lagun Akinloye, Nigerian political analyst on the line from London in Britain, in conversation there with Kumbelo, Kumbero rather, Munjarere. It is 1921 Central African time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumele Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Now off to South Africa now, a country that is just over halfway through a massive effort by multiple stakeholders to circumcise some 4.3 million men, a move aimed at averting scores of new HIV infections. The next goal is to now circumcise 2 million more by 2020 in order to achieve the final targets. Currently, the country has over 7 million people living with HIV. To discuss the country's circumcision program further, we now joined on the line by Dr. Kumbulani Moyo, the Medical Male Circumcision Project Director at the South African Health and Nonprofit Organization Right to Care. Hello and thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Moyo. Uh, good evening. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Um, now, let's start with a brief background of the country's circumcision program. Yeah, <clears throat> so um, the background is that uh, it, uh, back in uh, early 2000, and even, even before that, there's always been uh, thoughts that um, uh, there's been observation that countries that have high circumcision rates in sub-Saharan Africa have a lower HIV prevalence. I guess um, when you look at um, them compared to those that have got lower prevalence of circumcision, um, that was um, an observation, but now we, we have um, trials that have shown that to be in fact scientifically um, plausible, and we now know that the circumcision reduces the risk of acquiring HIV from a female to a male by up to 60%. 
So with that evidence in mind, uh, circumcision is very uh, efficacious in preventing HIV. So in South Africa, for example, which has got the highest number of people living with HIV and where infection rates are high, this um, can play a role. So South Africa then uh, embarked on a program from 2010 to circumcise um, 80% of the male population between 15 and 49, and that represents a number of 4.3 million. So far, more than 3 million has been circumcised, and right to care ourselves have contributed to more than a million of those circumcisions. And with that, um, we have averted um, new HIV infection. All right. Um, and what about uh, transmission from male to female? You say it reduces um, trans- uh, the chances of uh, transmission from female to male. What about the other way around? Um, as, as a direct effect, it's actually um, from female to male. But as an indirect um, effect, you may appreciate that in the long run, it actually has that as an indirect effect. But directly, it doesn't work the other way around. If the man is circumcised and is HIV positive and the woman is negative, it doesn't necessarily, um, there's no reduced risk there. All right. So what about then people, and this is something that's been cited time and time again, who then say, well, because they're circumcised, they have a permanent condom on and um, they're safe from contracting HIV. Yeah, thanks for the question, because um, it is important to point out that it's um, not 100%. If, if, um, it doesn't reduce the risk by 100%. It's only up to 60%. But that means it's not completely preventative, although we... I mean, 60% is a huge difference, but it doesn't completely prevent. So you still need to take other precautions. Uh, such as sex and use of condoms. Why was there a need um, to embark on this um, circumcision campaign when there are measures to prevent, like condoms, for example? Um, I think you have to use every ammunition that you have um, to fight a very deadly disease like HIV. Uh, so you, I'm sure you, you, you know, if if you if you're driving a vehicle, you you have to sit, put on your seatbelt. You have to observe the rules of the road. So you have to use all precautions to avoid being in an accident when you're driving. Just think of it as that that you have to, um, you know, put your seatbelt on. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you have to drive recklessly. Um, so circumcision basically is an added. Uh, you know, it's an added measure that you can take to prevent HIV transmission. And actually, um, it, it, in a, at population level, it has been demonstrated that it does um, have that effect. How easy has it been to convince men, um, especially in a country where the majority of men had not uh, been circumcised previously or had not been circumcised at all, how, how easy was it to convince them that they actually do need to go and get circumcised? Yes, yeah, so that's an interesting question because, um, you know, the, the male genital system is, is a very vital um, reproductive um, organ for, for us in both the 
in terms of reproduction as well as our social well-being. So it's actually a very sensitive um, thing. But in South Africa, um, the fortunate thing is that we've got a, a number of cultures that already do circumcision for various reasons. I mean, um, for cultural reasons, for religious reasons, and also, I mean, circumcision has always been done for medical reasons anyway. But I think it, 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 so it actually helps to know that when we introduce it as an intervention for HIV prevention, um, this is, this wasn't completely new mm. in the country. So, yep. so this was, was actually a new evidence that was there. So we had to communicate and also communicate carefully that we are sending the right message and not necessarily, like you say, it's not a permanent condom. It's a measure that you take. Um, you say that there are cultures that do it anyway, but w- what about cultures that did not do it? How easy was it to convince those? Um, for example, the Zulu culture or the Afrikaans culture that did not um, have a circumcision as part of their culture? Um, it's, um, it, it's been a, a process. So, you know, because this is like, this is a government program, this is the Department of Health, um, armed with the, the evidence that is there. So it involves a lot of stakeholders. I'll give you an example. The Zulu people were not circumcising because it's something that was stopped by um, uh, Ushara back in the days because of wars. But now, King Kudu Zolitino of the Zulu announced that he, want, he wants uh, Zulus to to circumcise. So that was a new um, announcement, again, bringing back the culture of circumcision yeah. to Zulus. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, um, uh-huh. what I'm saying is even those cultures that were not circumcising always knew about the their, their neighbors who were circumcising. Yes. So it was not necessarily like it's alien, it's completely alien because South Africa is very cosmopolitan. Yes. So there's a lot of influence of different cultures. All right, uh, Dr. Moyo. Um, uh, Dr. Moyo, quickly now, uh, we have to wrap up. Um, the two million additional men by 2020. Are you confident that's going to be reached? Yes, I think um, so. This is the gist of the matter. Uh, in that, we really need to um, to push harder to get to those yes. numbers, and and it's becoming more and more um, harder to convince men. Yes, but. Um, but also, I will see in some areas it's becoming uh, something that is not, like I was saying, it's no longer introducing something new. All right. Experiences of those who have actually circumcised have helped us to reach All out right. to even more men. All right. We have to end it there. Dr. Kumbulani Moyo is the Medical Male Circumcision Project Director at the South African Health and Nonprofit Organization, Right to Care. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, it's your news headlines now at 17.30 with Jolana Tulo.
Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, Zimbabwe's Electoral Commission says presidential election results will be announced from 10 o'clock Central African time this evening. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, a team led by the health minister has arrived in Beni, the eastern region hit by Ebola. And finally, the Roman Catholic Church has changed its position on the death penalty, declaring that it is wrong to use capital punishment in all circumstances. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Cholane. Now, protests and insecurity have halted operations to truck oil from Kenya's oil fields in the Tukana County, north of the country, to the port city of Mombasa for close to a month now. Tolo Oil, the British company exploring oil in the country, says it is losing $100,000 daily due to the ongoing shutdown. Sarakimani reports on the impasse that is likely to delay Kenya's dream of being an oil exporter by 2022. History making the first oil from East Africa being transported to Mombasa. Asante sana tuendele. On June 3rd, Kenya's president, Uhuru Kenyatta, flagged off Kenya's first oil shipment from the oil wells in the country's far-flung Trukana County, a milestone in the East African nation's dream of being an oil exporter. Celebrations were, however, short-lived as angry local communities seized trucks transporting oil to the port city of Mombasa and stormed into one of the oil wells and storage sites. They were protesting insecurity in the county. These disruptions forced the company to shut down operations, including the tracking of oil. Martin Bogo is a country manager of Talo Oil in Kenya. The reason we thought is it made sense to pause the operation was because tension was building in the area. We understand there were security concerns outside of ourselves. Uh, we became uh, a lever into how this can be addressed within the wider context. This happening uh, this early in the game is actually beneficial than happening when you have an 800 kilometer pipeline and uh, this sort of situation happens. Kenya's National Bureau of Statistics ranks Trukana County as the poorest county in Kenya. Banditry and cattle rustling is also rampant here, fueled by a flow of illegal arms from neighboring countries. The discovery of oil has increased expectations for the community here. Charles Wangoho is a coordinator of the Kenyan Civil Society platform on oil and gas. The community has seen an opportunity for them to be to be heard. These are previously marginalized communities um, who, when, secu- when their security before was under threat, they had to deal with it themselves. So a lot of them are armed, um, and they were armed even by government to be reservists to protect themselves. Now they're seeing an opportunity where they're saying, oh, but you're listening to us when it comes to oil. But when it comes to security, you're not listening to us. So the only way for us to get heard is by stopping the oil, and then we'll be listened to. By the time of the shutdown, Talo had transported 800,000 litres to Mombasa by road, a distance of over 1,000 kilometres for future export under the early oil export scheme. Talo plans to make a final investment decision by next year as they prepare to begin exports by 2021. Martin Bogo, the country manager, Talo Oil Kenya. Why trucking and not a pipe? 
the key benefits of this is the volumes are fairly small, 2,000 barrels of oil per day. We needed to keep the cost of this trial extremely low because being a prudent operator, and the way you keep those costs low is uh, rather than increase or invest in a storage facilities in Trukana, which you will not need in the future, uh, you have shared infrastructure by way of storage at the petroleum refineries in Mombasa, and therefore by working a transport arrangement that involves trucking, then it helps also bring the costs down of the, this pilot scheme. So the shutdown will it, are you going to incur losses and had you foreseen these losses? Like how much will you be losing? Yes, I think we have stated publicly that uh, the run rate per day is about $100,000 per day in terms of uh, what would be considered losses. We're looking at this as investment because it's virtually uh, extremely important to be able to get into the next phase when any grievances and most uh, a grievance management mechanism is in place so that we do not get into a situation like this when you are moving 80,000 barrels of oil per day. Civil society organizations say these hurdles that Talo now faces could have been avoided if the British oil company was more open with the community. Wanguho again. The stalemate, I think the one way to get out of it is increased transparency and accountability. Because what we've tried, we've tried the backroom uh, negotiations, as you've seen. You know, people have been called to state house, people have been called where, and they've signed things that we don't, we're not very clear, and they're still here. So I think we just need to get, be more transparent. Because if you're more transparent, you also reduce the deal making which is what uh, some of the players now might be angling for. I think the challenge being encountered there is one of awareness and uh, education. The question of transparency is open. I think uh, as a company, we've published what we pay, we've published uh, whom we pay, uh, we have published contracts uh, elsewhere outside of this country. What is happening at the moment is not unique to Kenya or to this industry. We see these sort of situations in uh, most jurisdictions where there is something of value. I think we need to see this as an opportunity, as a golden chance to be able to rectify and fix that which concerns stakeholders. I, efforts are being made by government, by ourselves, by stakeholders. Um, I'm quite optimistic we'll get back to operation. But this is not just about insecurity. Talo first experienced protests in 2013. There have been demands for jobs, infrastructure, and more recently, how the oil will be shared. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta. We have managed to come to an agreement, an agreement that will be based on us sharing the revenue on the basis of 75% to all the people of Kenya through the national government, 20% to the county government, and 5% to the local community. A decision on oil revenue sharing seemed to have allowed the beginning of tracking. Joseph Nanok, the governor of Turkana County. The Turkana people and the leadership will now support the program for early oil. We will support the program for oil production moving forward because the impediment that the Turkana people are concerned with and even the Council of Governors in its petition to Parliament has now been discussed and resolved in an amicable manner. 
Tello estimates that Kenya has recoverable oil reserves of 1.2 billion barrels. Soon. So if you position yourself at 80,000 barrels of oil production per day, um, and even a conservative price of $50 per barrel, then you are thinking of revenues in 2021 in excess of uh, 1.5 billion. Tello is now caught up in another political storm. The demand by local communities and insecurity and oil will flow. The company says it is already providing jobs, rehabilitating schools and health centers, an opportunity to change an area long forgotten in the East African nation's development agenda. On the oil fields, however, the stalemate persists. Sarah Kemani, Kenya. A brand new study into the future of African power utilities and energy challenges that they face has highlighted four possible scenarios of what the continent's energy sector will look like by the year 2030. Natalie Bacon, program director at the African Utility Week, says in the white paper entitled The Future of Energy and Power Utilities in Africa, utilities are envisioned to either become the lions of Africa, hungry hyenas, and elephant herd, or white elephants, with each scenario having different consequences for both the African energy industry and the consumer as well. We worked with the Gordon Institute of Business Science at the University of Pretoria to really put together different scenarios of what the African energy sector could look like in 2030. So we looked at the different challenges that the African power sector faces and which could also face in the future. So look at like the, some uncertainties such as fiscal, governance, partnership, climate change, and put together some scenarios which could help the executives on the power sector make some strategic sessions for what's ahead of them. I don't know if you're accustomed to the report, if you've, if you've read it already, the white paper. Yes, the white paper is called The Future of Energy and Power Utilities in Africa. So in summary, what business science, the Gordon Institute of Business Science has done is put together four scenarios. So one of them is the Lions of Africa. The second one is the Hungry Hyenas. The third is the elephant herd, and the fourth is white elephants. And what they're saying in this report is that if the African utilities, you know, if they become agile, if they look at collaboration with businesses and communities, um, community partners in 2030, they can be really the lions of Africa. They can be you know, um, very dominant and achieving the electrification goals. Now, Natalie, given the current status quo with the energy utilities being monopolized in some of the countries, including looking at South Africa in particular, how would this be broken down in order to be able to let people participate in uh, this situation to make the utilities to remain relevant? Okay. So as an everyday person, you want to ensure that your power, the cost of your electricity isn't too high, and you want to make sure that you have a constant and secured access. So if you're working, if the utilities are working well, if they're taking on and understanding the new challenges or the new opportunities that technology can bring, then you can work with them and you can potentially either have cheaper power 
or you can have solar power panels on your roof and sell back to the utility. However, if utilities don't stay relevant, things don't stay current, if they stay the same and they have what you say the status quo, it could mean that the utilities have really expensive costs, they're not supplying secured, and you're faced to go off the grid to remain, you know, to keep your access and to keep having your, your energy security. If we talk about decentralization of energy from the white paper's perspective, would it be an ideal situation? Decentralization is happening, and through decentralization, and the utilities are not driving it, are reacting to it rather than driving it. It's, they were losing customers, so it is a bad situation for them. However, they can turn this around. They can be in charge of decentralization. They can make it work for the industry. They can make it work for the people. And they can make it work for themselves as well. But if they are the drivers, they can put together a win-win situation for everyone. So would that lead to the people, as I mentioned before, being in control of their own destinies with regards to the energy sector, providing themselves uh, with energy? Yeah, absolutely. With the price of technology coming down and falling and seeing new technologies coming up in terms of battery storage, people really can be in charge of their own energy destiny and, and reliability and security. It's definitely a possibility now. And you're seeing a lot in East Africa. A lot of East Africans have what we call Pico systems, and they can charge their mobile phones, they can charge their radios, and you know, watch their TV on a single solar panel. So with this, it is still an expensive option. So the price per unit of the East Africans charging their phones if they just have solar panels on their roof um, can be more expensive than if they run on the grid and pay for their power from the utility. But it is a possibility. And as years go by, people can become more off-grid and, and can... If they choose to be, they can have the, the solar system and the renewable options available at a household level. So the laws in those areas have changed in as far as them relying on the central grid. Yes, absolutely. So there is so this technology. They can be, you know, it can mean that you're less reliant on a central grid or on one utility. So it does enable access. It does enable people to, to come off grid, but there is, there is still, I mean, the prices still have to come down. That's Natalie Bacon, Program Director at Africa Utility Week, talking to Wandi Lekalipa. Your economics news now, here is Wasani Matebula. Thanks, Spumelele. We start off now with uh, breaking news. A mining company, Impala Platinum, will slash about a third of its workforce over two years in one of the biggest rounds of job cards by one mining company in living memory in South Africa as the platinum industry faces a day of reckoning. The number of platinum miners employed in South Africa 
which is the world's largest producer of the precious metal, has uh, fallen from a peak of almost 200,000 in 2008 to 175,000 in the face of depressed prices and soaring costs, fueling labor and social unrest. Job cuts are politically sensitive in South Africa. Meanwhile, Minerals Resources Minister has uh, labeled uh, the plan by Impala to retrench 13,000 jobs as reckless and careless. The department says uh, the decision is premature as engagements with Impala Platinum are still at an early stage to try and save jobs. Impala Platinum announced that it will be closing five mines, resulting in thousands of job losses. The department says Implat's actions are a display of arrogance. Ayanda Shezi speaks for the department. In the media statement released this afternoon, the Department of Mineral Resources says Implant's actions are a display of arrogance. It further says the plan goes against the recent call made by President Cyril Ramaphosa to turn around the country's economic fortunes. It has urged Implants to reconsider its action and return to the process that was agreed upon. Hilda Gassa, SABC News, Johannesburg. And protests and insecurity have halted operations uh, to truck oil from Kenya's oil fields in the Takana County, north of the country, to the port city of Mombasa for close to a month now. Tello Oil, the British company exploring oil in Kenya, says it's losing 100,000 US dollars daily due to the ongoing shutdown. Tello Oil country manager Martin Mbogo. The reason we thought is it made sense to pause the operation was because tension was building in the area. We understand there were security concerns outside of ourselves. Uh, we became uh, a lever into how this can be addressed within the wider context. Mm-hmm. This happening uh, this early in the game is actually beneficial than happening when you have an 800-kilometer pipeline and uh, this sort of situation happens. Meanwhile, a thick fog has disrupted incoming flights to Nairobi's Jomo Kenyatta International Airport this morning. Kenya Airways says several flights are being diverted to alternative airports as it's monitoring the situation. Flights from Dubai and Amsterdam are among those affected. 25 foreign airlines operate out of Nairobi's main airport, including Turkish Airlines, Emirates, South African Airways and Ethiopian Airways. And Tanzania Central Bank has taken over the management of Bank M as the mid-sized commercial lender has critical liquidity problems and is unable to meet its financial obligations. The East African nation's financial sector has seen a spike in bad loans since 2015 that has hit uh, bank profits and uh, stifled private sector lending. It suspended uh, Bank M's board of directors and management and appointed a statutory manager to handle the affairs of the lender with effect from Tuesday. Financial indicators now the dollar at uh, 1009, Botswana Pula 9.87, Zambian Kwacha, BRICS currencies. We've got the dollar at uh, 3.75, Brazilian Real 62.74, Russian Ruble 68.25, Indian Rupee 6.82, Chinese Yuan, and at 13.24, South African rents. Against European currencies, the dollar is at 76 pence to the British pound and 85 cents against the euro. Now to commodities, gold $1,219, platinum $816 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil has gone down by three notches, which is a a big fall for now at uh, $72.65 per barrel. And that's how it's looking.
Thanks, Susanne. Your sports news now. Here's Mosebude Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Egypt's national side have hired Mexican coach Javier Aguirre to lead them into the next World Cup in Qatar in 2022 after the nation's hugely disappointing performance at the 2018 World Cup in Russia. Now, Egypt were knocked out of the tournament at the first stage with three losses when many had expected them to qualify out of what had been seen as a um, relatively easy group for the Africans. His first assignment with Egypt will be to qualify for next year's Africa Cup of Nations finals. Their next qualifier is at home to Niger next month. Nothing founded and the case closed. I don't know why they reopened the, the case. There's still investigation. But uh, at the end of the story, in the last six years, I just take 15 minutes of my life, 15, to talk about this. So no way that it can affect my job it, it didn't in the last six years, so no way that it, it can affect me for the future. Well, back in 2014, he was named alongside many others by Spain's anti-corruption prosecutor as a suspect in a match-fixing case following a probe into Real Zaragoza's 2-1 win at Lavante on the final day of the 2010-2011 Spanish League campaign. We have to take advantage of the basement that Mr. Cooper did here very well work, and uh, after that, as I told you, it's like like Mexico. We have a lot of dreams, we have a lot of expectation, we have a, a lot of uh, of things to do. My dream is same like you, to be one of the top teams in the world. I mean, we we have element, we have quality, we have good players. I mean, we have everything to do. Our dream come true. Back home, South Africa's women's under-17 national team is hard at work preparing for the site's training camp ahead of the FIFA under-17 Women's World Cup set to take place in Uruguay later this year. Ghana, South Africa as well as Cameroon will represent the African continent in the 2018 FIFA under-17 Women's World Cup. Bantwana head coach Simpiwe Zulu explains what participating at the World Cup will mean for them. Personally for me, the World Cup as a person... It's a milestone, it's big, you know, because we are not just talking continental, but we are talking a global competition. That means the best of the best in the world will have an opportunity to compete and showcase their talent there, not just the players, but also the coaches to impart their knowledge and adapt and assert themselves and be able to get the best out of their players and their teams in order to achieve, you know, that is the first one for me. And I think um, it also patted me in the back to say the hard work, sleepless nights, it was all worth it, you know, uh, the sacrifices of saying I'm away from my family and I just want to chase and chasing success is just making sure that I give the best of me and those that I'm working with, I, I impart knowledge to them and gain from them as well so that we are able to demand excellence from one another. 
Legendary former Springbok wing Brian Habana says he was physically fine to continue playing rugby but opted against doing so. The 35-year-old who is South Africa's all-time leading try scorer with 67 tries from his 124 tests confirmed his retirement from professional rugby earlier this year. In an in-depth interview with Sky Sports earlier this week, Habana said he was frustrated that he was not picked by um, a French club Toulon despite recovering from injury. He added that uh, there was an opportunity to play for another year in Japan, but gave his reasons for retiring instead. And finally, the Stormers and the Bulls have wished fellow South African side the Lions well for their Super Rugby final against the Crusaders in Christchurch this coming Saturday. The Crusaders are looking for an unprecedented ninth Super Rugby title, while the Lions, beaten finalist in the past two seasons, are looking for an, um, are looking for their maiden triumph. For the Zaya Sports News at the Sawa, I'm back with more sports news just before 8 p.m. Central African time. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.56 Central African time on Africa Digest as we give you news from an African perspective recapping our top stories. The blame game continues in Zimbabwe after a post-election protest turned fatal. The return of Jean-Pierre Bemba adds an interesting dimension to DRC politics. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumelele, Zondi producer, Luanda, Mahomet technical producer, Jirimalu Makao, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. It's email, uh, well, your emails, rather, to info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, and WhatsApp, plus two seven. 76300 Tweet us on Channel Africa One. We leave you with Tembalam by DJ Mellon, Soulstar, and Monthly Nobo.
watching it. 